Would you join me in a word of prayer? And so, Lord, we we come uh, recognizing that you are alive, that you have conquered the grave, that you have conquered sin and death and hell, that you are Lord of all creation and you're head of the church, and that you have given us your spirit. And Lord, if that were not true, if those things were not true, then we would have no reason to gather here. Our gathering would be in vain. But knowing that you're alive, knowing that your spirit's here, knowing that your word is sharper than any two-edged sword, it's able to get right to the heart of each and every one of us to change us and transform us. Lord, we have great confidence and great anticipation this morning that you will do good things for us. And so we ask that you be faithful as you have been again and again and again to your word this morning and use it to conform us into Christ-likeness. Not that we would be glorified, but that you would be. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh, well, good morning. I invite you to turn your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 6. <clears throat> as we've been making our way through it, it's uh, uh, our way of doing things here, if you haven't noticed, is that we teach through the Word of God, portion by portion, as we make our way through the text. We call that expositional preaching because the goal is to expose the Word of God to the people of God over time so that it shapes us in the way that He wants us to be shaped. Uh, we're in First Timothy, uh, and we're coming to the very end, and I thought that maybe I could get the last chunk all in one swipe this morning, but lo and behold, the way it is when you dive into the text, you start to study, and you just feel like there's way too much to try to squeeze in. I didn't feel like you guys wanted a two-hour sermon this morning, uh, so we have, uh, we're going to try our best to do verses 17 to 19 where he's wrapping up with some final thoughts to Timothy and particularly for Timothy to bring to this church in Ephesus that Timothy is now serving. To help us understand this passage, I actually want to draw your attention to Genesis chapter 1. You can go to the very first chapter of the Bible. In fact, we could start at the very first verse of the Bible, a verse you know that you could probably recite from memory. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You already knew that, right? In the very beginning, it was God. It was only God. It was God existing in eternity past. And at some point, He decided to bring into existence all heaven and all earth. It was His creation. The Bible will go on to describe that because God is Creator, He is therefore owner. That that which He creates is His. It is His possession. He rules over it. He is King. Everything that you've ever seen is His. In fact, you are a creature. You were created by God, and therefore you are owned by Him. He creates. He rules. He manufactures this creation exactly the way He wants to. And then we see toward the end of chapter 1, you could look at verse 28, that God does something that you might have thought to be surprising. This beautiful creation that He has made, verse 28, 
God creates mankind, and it says in verse 28, He blesses them, and God says to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves over the earth. Verse 29, And God said, Behold, I've given you every plant, yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. He goes on to say, I made the world. I made it all. I've created all these things. This is what Genesis 1 is saying. And then he creates humanity. These two people, the first parents, Adam and Eve. He puts them in this creation and he tells them, it's all yours. All of it. Rule over it all. Subdue this creation. Multiply and spread throughout the whole world and all that is there is yours. It's yours to subdue. It's yours to cultivate. In other words, that which God creates, that which God owns, is He now gives to His people to rule over, to steward. He doesn't entirely relinquish the rights of the Creator. He doesn't entirely hand it over, back away, and have nothing to do with His creation. In fact, the Scriptures will go on to say throughout in various places that the creation is really still His. He still owns it. The cattle on a thousand hills, they're all His. He owns everything. Every piece of gold on the earth, every ounce of wealth that could be distributed is actually His, but that He has given this world to His people, to His creation, for them to rule over in small ways they are to be reflecting God's rule over the world. I imagine David, if you turn to to Psalm chapter 8, reflecting on this truth, broke out into worship. Psalm 8 is really a reflection, a doxological, worshipful reflection of Genesis 1. It's as if David is reading Genesis 1 and he just breaks out into worship. Verse 1 of Psalm 8, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. Look at verse 3. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? You ever laid out in a starry night, looked up at the stars, you see the the moon and you feel very insignificant? Looking at all the creation... All that God has made, this is what David's doing. Who am I and who are we that you you even care about humanity? But then look at what he says in verse 5. Yet you have made him, that's humanity, a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. he's, He's amazed at this reality that in this beautiful creation, God has created image bearers to rule His creation, and He has given this creation to them. He crowned them. That's, that's royalty language, right? A crown, glory, honor, given these, these, these humans dominion over the works of God's hands. 
This is what we see in Scripture, that creation is God's. And yet, in His sovereign decision, He gave His creation to be stewarded, to be cared for, to be ruled over by His people that He made. You could see it again in Psalm 115, in verse 16, where the psalmist writes, the heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth He has given to the children of man. This is God's prerogative. It's what He's done in His sovereignty. He has not only created, He has not only called into existence all the material universe, everything you've ever known and everything you've ever seen, but then the people that He has created, He has given their responsibility to rule and reign on the earth. He's given them a calling to have dominion, to rule, to subdue, to spread out over every corner of the globe and to rule over God's earth to His glory. He gives people His creation. He gives them portions of His creation. As humanity has multiplied and people have spread out into every corner of the globe, God has decided according to His secret and somewhat mysterious will to distribute His creation to people uh, so that they are owners of portions of His creation. Obviously, this is all in the context of God's overall sovereign ownership, but He allows some to have property, to have possessions. He, in fact, gives laws that we are not to steal from one another. Uh, Thou shalt not steal, one of the Ten Commandments. Uh, He gives some things to some people, and they are to possess those things, own those things, in fact, steward those things, use those things, so as to reflect the nature of God. Anyone who has anything has what they have. Why? Because God in His divine and perfect wisdom, in His sovereignty, has decided to give that person those things, that stuff, that money, that property, that opportunity. It's all from God's sovereign hand. It's His creation. He decides what to do with it. And He's decided to distribute it to His creatures. Interestingly, God is not some socialist that distributes it all equally and makes sure everyone has the exact same amount, is He? It doesn't, it doesn't, uh, it's not hard to see that, that God has distributed and is distributing His creation to people in unequal ways. Not everyone gets the same amount. Some people are rich, some people are not. Some people have a lot, some people have little. In fact, Jeremiah chapter 27 verse 5 says this, It is I, this is God speaking, He says, It is I who by my great power in my outstretched arm have made the earth with the men and the animals that are on the earth. And I give it to whomever it seems right to me. (laughs) There it is. God in His sovereignty. He's created the world. It's His right to distribute as He sees fit. And we don't have some secret knowledge as to why. All we know is that God, as it seems right to Him, that's what He says, as it seems right to Him, distributes His creation to people. He he gives them stuff to take care of. Possessions, properties, riches. And they are to be stewards and to use what God has given them for His glory. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 7 
The Lord makes poor and the Lord makes rich. He brings low and He exalts. It's His prerogative. It's His decision. In His sovereignty, He has chosen to do such things. He is not obligated to meet our standards of equity. He is God and He decides these things. Some are poor. Some are rich. It is not because the rich are loved more by God. It is not because the rich got some kind of leg up on everybody else. In, in contradiction to some false teachers who will say that the sign of God's love for you is your own wealth, uh, or the sign that God is favoring you is He allows you to have a lot of money, that is actually not what the Scriptures teach. It is according to God's mysterious, providential, sovereign will that He divides up and distributes His creation to people according to what seems fit to Him. You are not a sinner more than other sinners if you have less. You are not loved more than others if you have more. It's not bad to be rich. It's not bad to be poor. God has just in His sovereignty allowed some to have more and some to have less. It is His prerogative. Now that brings us to 1 Timothy chapter 6. Now turn with me there and that will help us understand kind of what we're getting into. Because now in this section of the letter, Paul has been writing to Timothy, as you know, uh, to help Timothy help this church. Timothy is at this church in Ephesus. Timothy's meant to pastor this church, to bring it back to health and to let it get to a place of stability and he's got to address different issues and he's been doing that all along and now he begins to address the rich he he begins to at the very end of this letter single out the rich He, he needs to address them uniquely specifically paul wants to make sure these people are uh singled out and directly addressed let me read our text And then we'll start looking at what it means for us. Verse 17. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves is a good foundation for the future so they may take hold of that which is truly life he begins to address what he calls the rich in this present age as we were just saying in our understanding of God's rule over his creation some he makes poor and some he makes rich that is some God has given more than what they need to survive. You say, well, what does it mean to be rich? You could define being rich as having surplus. The rich are people who have not only the ability to put food on the table, clothes on their back to be able to provide for the family, they're able to do those things, but the rich in particular are those who have extra. They are able to to take care of the responsibilities God has given them as they seek to provide for themselves, for their families. But in addition to that, they have been given more. They have extra. There's food on the table. There's clothing. There's shelter. Those things are all done. And there's money left to spare. That would be the rich. 
And there are some people in the world that he has not given surplus to. They are able to survive on barely what they have. God cares for them in that way. They have food. They have shelter. Maybe there are even people who don't hardly have that. They have very little. God in His sovereignty has decided to make that the case for many people in our world. Others, and that would probably be many of us in this room, God has entrusted a surplus. Not many of us, I think, are hoping and praying for a meal tomorrow. Uh, Many of us have pantries that are full, that even if we were to go grocery shopping for another week or so, or a couple weeks, or maybe a month, you'd be able to eat everything that's in your pantry and you'd be fine. We're we're provided for. Uh, We're provided for. We have a surplus. We got food. We got clothing. We're able to take care of the responsibilities God has given us. And then there's money to spare. And so Paul wants Timothy to address these people. He wants us to address the rich. Now, we we might be thinking, okay, well, who are the the rich? Uh, And often we Americans have a hard time understanding who the rich are because even if we start talking about surplus, we start going, well, is that really me? Am I really part of the rich? I think it's kind of a unique American problem that we are not sure if we're rich or not. Um, We are like... Uh, we're like a seven-foot-tall seven person that thinks they're short because they live in a tribe of eight-feet-tall people. Like, we are all rich. We, we, we tend to compare ourselves with the Bill Gates and the ultra-rich of the world in, in what I think actually the, the biblical idea of what rich it means is that we're having surplus. We, we're, we're cared for. We're We're, we're good. We, we, got, we got the food, we got the clothing, we got the shelter, we got some to spare, and then we got even more. Uh, I think sometimes we, we in a particular, in America, have this hard time understanding that this is really addressing us. This is us. We are the rich of this present age. You could make a case that America is the richest nation to have ever existed on the planet. We are rich. We have surplus. I think there's a... Uh, the, not only do we have a hard time understanding we're rich because we're all rich, and so we have a hard time really comparing ourselves and understanding what it means, but I think there's a second reason why we don't understand ourselves to be rich, because often we are the type of people, because of the affluence of our society, we take things that are preferences, and what do we do? We turn them into needs, we invest in them, and then we have no more money left over. Poor us. I can't buy that third car. I can't upgrade to that huge house. Oh, I'm not as rich as these other guys. I'm not rich. We make preferences, turn them into needs. We, we, we want extra comforts, extra luxuries. We want a life of opulence. And then we maybe invest into all those things and we have no more money. We can barely afford it all and we feel like we're poor. I think what we actually have to do is come back to understand that rich means that God has given you what you need to eat, what you need to survive, and then He's given you surplus. And if you have any sort of surplus, if you've ever had to ask yourself, what do I do with this extra money? That means you're rich. (laughs) You, You qualify. You qualify into that category. And that means that this is a text that is for us. Now this is unique. I think this is interesting. Does, does Paul also include a section addressing the poor? Not in the same way here, does he? 
No, no, no. He, he, he singles out the rich. As for the rich in this present age, I have a word for the rich. The poor have different temptations, but it seems as if, in Paul's mind, as he writes this letter, there's a unique danger that rich people face. In fact, if you've been here the last month or so, you would probably see this coming up again and again in the last couple chapters that he has been addressing this issue of money and how to use it. And so he singles out the rich, and he's going to be crystal clear about what the rich need to do in relationship to their money. You say, why does he single out the rich? You could just do a cursory study of the ways that the Bible describes riches, and you would understand why rich people are in a uniquely dangerous position. The text we just looked at, how are riches described? Uncertain. Proverbs 23.5, riches are described as fleeting. Matthew 13.33, riches are deceitful. Proverbs 28.11, riches cause people to become wise in their own eyes. Proverbs 30, riches tempt people to forget God. And to cap it off, Mark 10, riches make it extremely difficult, according to Jesus, to enter into the kingdom of God. In other words, you just look at the ways that the Bible talks about money, and it's not sinful to have money. Let me make that crystal clear. You're not wrong if you're rich. It's not bad to be rich. But it does seem to be the testament of Scripture again and again and again that rich people have unique temptations that need to be addressed in unique ways, in specific ways. It's a uniquely dangerous scenario to have a lot of money. It's interesting in our present moment that this is probably, one of the ways this is different from Timothy's day was that probably in Timothy's church that he was caring for, there weren't that many rich people. There were probably some. This is why this part of the letter needed to be included. But I doubt that the entire congregation listening to the letter that Paul wrote in Ephesus would have thought, yeah, I'm rich. I think we all need to sit here though and listen to this and say, I think this is talking to me. I think this is talking to me. I think we need to get this. I think it's a uniquely dangerous situation. And it would be very wise of us to not think about the other people that need to hear this, but to sit in the chair and let the text hit you right where you're at and say, this is for me. How do you handle having money? Where's your hope in relation to money? You could turn over to Ecclesiastes if you want to. Chapter 5, verse 10, where Solomon is writing all these experiences he's had, all these wise sayings he's accumulated, and he begins to address the topic of money Solomon, a rich king. Solomon who had everything he could dream of. In Solomon's day, the gold was so plentiful it almost became worthless. He was rich more than any of us could imagine. In verse 10 of chapter 5, he 
who loves money will not be satisfied with money. You see that? He who loves money will not be satisfied with money. Do you love money? Hate to break it to you. It's not going to satisfy you. Nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much. But the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. He might have all that he wants. He might be rich. He might love money, but he can't sleep at night. It's not satisfying. It's empty. It's vanity. How do you handle being rich? And are you pursuing riches? I think we've got to pay special attention to riches in our lives and the availability of money in our society. It's available. There are multitudes of pathways towards making wealth and accumulating wealth. And many of us have some measure of wealth. And we need to think about these things and think about the unique dangers that we are in, that we find ourselves in. I was reminded of, as I was studying for this sermon, uh, the, the Lord of the Rings story. If you remember, if you've read the Lord of the Rings books or maybe you've seen the movies, the, the story centers around the One Ring. You remember the One Ring? And what happens when you possess the One Ring? It's extremely powerful, isn't it? Extraordinarily powerful. It could, it could give you power beyond your imagination. And yet, what does it do? The tighter you clutch the ring, the more you hold on to it, the more you set your hope on it, it slowly but certainly begins to corrupt. It begins to corrupt you. The, the power that you long for, the stability that the ring offers, eventually begins to grab hold of your heart and change you and move you away from that which you should be trusting. And I find there to be an analogy with money. And that's why we are warned in this text to be careful about money. And we're going to see three don'ts related to money here. Three don't do this. Three don't do this in our text. And I'm going to start with the first one as we read verse 17. As for the rich in this age, in this present age, charge them not to be haughty. Here's our first don't in relation to our money, in relation to our riches. Here it is. Ready? Don't let riches make you proud. Don't let riches make you proud. He mentions this because becoming proud is a temptation to the rich, isn't it? He wouldn't say this if it wasn't a temptation. We who have money, we who have means, we who are blessed are particularly and uniquely tempted to become proud. It might be the kind of pride that thinks, because I have money, I'm better than these other people. God loves me more. God cares more about me. God clearly wants to provide for me more. Therefore, He must love me more than these other people who have less than me. There's that kind of pride. That is not the truth, though. People who have more are not loved more. That is not at all what God is saying when He blesses someone with riches. It's not, I'm better, and yet we love to take whatever we can in our lives as fallen sinners, don't we? We love to grab on to anything we can, pull it into ourselves, and say, this is why I matter. This is why I'm better. This is why I'm above these other people. 
And we can do that with our money, can't we? Because my bank account's bigger, because God has provided for me more. We could even say, oh, thank you to God for providing for me all the ways you've provided for me. And deep down in our heart of hearts, we're saying, oh, you must love me more than everyone else. That makes us proud. You think your money, your wealth, puts you on a different pedestal than other believers, than the poor among you, perhaps? See, it can cause us to become proud. That's why he says, charge them not to be haughty. If you're rich in this life, don't be proud about it. Don't, don't think you're better than everybody else because you're rich. There's another kind of pride that can seep into the life of someone who has a lot of money, has a lot of riches, and that's the pride. And this is maybe perhaps more dangerous. It's the pride of self-sufficiency. We, 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 we begin to think, I've got life figured out. I know how to make money. I know how to hold on to my money. I've got life figured out. I am taken care of. I am provided for. My future's secure. I've got it all figured out. I'm self-sufficient. I don't even need to pray and there's going to be a meal on the table tomorrow. I don't need to actually trust the Lord to provide for me because look at all that I have. I'm not desperate for His provision because look, the provision's already all here. This has always been a danger for the people of God throughout the entire Bible. In fact, I want you to turn over and see this in Deuteronomy chapter 8. God's going to give the people of Israel a land. He's going to bring them into the promised land. He's going to bless them tremendously. He's going to make them rich. He's going to make them secure. He's going to build a kingdom for them. And he as they're preparing to enter into the land, the, the Deuteronomy, the second giving of the law, Moses stands before the people. He preaches these, these messages to them. And in verse 11 of chapter 8, listen to this. It is actually a refrain that comes up again and again and again in the book of Deuteronomy. Verse 11, take care lest you what? You forget. You're going to have all this stuff. You're going to go into the land. You're going to be provided for. Take care lest you forget. You forget the Lord your God by not keeping His commandments and His rules and His statutes which I commanded you today. Listen to this. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them and when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart will be lifted up. And you, what's that word? Forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery, who led you through great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you, out, who brought you water from the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that He might humble you and test you to do good in the to do you good in the end verse 17 beware lest you say in your heart my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth that's a temptation to everyone who has money is that god is the one who gives it 
God is the one who owns it. He decided to give it to you, and yet we can get going in our lives, and we can do all these things and make these decisions about how we're going to use our money. We can set up these budgets. We can set up our job or these investments, and we begin to think that I'm wealthy because of the hard work I've put in and the good decisions I've made. It's my hands that have done these things. And our hearts get lifted up. We forget God who has actually given all of us. And you see that, well, why did God bring them through the wilderness and feed them with manna? And they're, they're at points hungry and they're at points thirsty and there's no certainty about the future. Why, why did God bring them there that He might humble them? In, in other words, it's, there's, there's a lot of blessing in not having the overflow of abundance they were being taught a tremendous lesson in their poverty through the desert. And the temptation was, is when that poverty was gone and when they were rich, when they were wealthy, they forgot God. They became self-reliant. What about you? In the ways God has provided for you, do your paychecks make you more dependent on God? Or less? Is the wealth that you've been able to accumulate by God's pleasure that He has given this to you, you've become more wealthy? Do you say as your fundamental answer, why are you wealthy? Is your fundamental answer because I? Or is it because God? Don't let riches make you proud. Don't let riches make you self-sufficient. Don't let riches make you think that you've got it all figured out. You remember the word in that verse that he uses to describe riches? What does he say? Uncertainty. Don't set your hope on the uncertainty of riches. They won't hold up in the day of judgment. And there have been so many stories, as you know, and you've probably heard them yourself, of a person who is rich today and poor tomorrow. Had it all and lost it all. Don't let riches make you proud. Remember what it feels like to be desperate for His provision. And cultivate that utter humility before God that if you don't provide God, I'm hungry, I'm poor, I'm empty. Secondly, look at the next thing that he says, don't. Don't let riches make you proud. That's first. Our second don't is don't let riches be your hope. You see that? Charge them, charge the rich not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Set your hope. Set your hope not on riches because they're uncertain and they're going to let you down. Set your hope on God. It is as if your hope is like a hand. You can set it on something. You could set it on a desk. You could set it on the shoulder of a loved one. You could set your hand on a ball. You could set your hope in the same way on various things. And here he's describing kind of two options. You could set your hope on your riches. You could, you could look to your hope. Or sorry, you could look to your riches to be your hope. Your riches are going to provide identity for you. Your riches are going to be the thing that provide for your future. They're going to give you security. They're going to give you that which you need. You grab on and you hold to those things. This is my hope. 
I am secure because my hope is in my money. That's an option. He's saying, don't do that. (laughs) Don't look to your money as the solution for your insecurity. You feel insecure. You feel uncertain about the future. Don't set your hope on riches. If you have money, don't put your hope on those the money that you have. Set your hope on something else. Uh, you might be, and maybe you don't even know it, beginning to set your hope on uncertain riches. Are you? It's a good thing to ask yourself every once in a while as you examine the text and you try to make sure the text is applying itself to your life and to your own heart. You've got to ask yourselves questions like these. Are you setting your hope on your wealth? Is that the reason you feel secure? Is that job you have? That raise you're looking for? That career that you're in? Is that your hope? You've set your hope on that. If that goes, I can't be provided for. I'm in danger. If this is gone, I don't know who I am anymore. You might be hoping in your money. Here's how you would know. Here's how you'd know. You have an always fluctuating sense of security. You sense it in your heart. When the bank is full, you feel pretty good. You feel pretty secure. When the job is secure, you're feeling great. When the jobs are lined up, you feel awesome. You're secure. But when those things happen to not be there, when you're not sure where work is going to come from in the next few months, when you're not quite sure of of how much money you're going to have at the end of paying your bills, and your, your joy raises and falls and rises and falls with your income, that's called banking on your riches. Do you have a fluctuating sense of security that's related to your income? How about this? You might have set your hope on the uncertainty of riches if you have a constant obsession to always be looking to make sure everything's fine in your finances. Now, there's a good side of being good stewards where you've got to keep your eye on it, right? This is good. I would encourage that to be a normal practice, to watch your finances, to be good stewards of it. God expects you to do that. But there's a different, you know, different road that we can take where we think it's all on us and we obsess over this. Where we're always looking at it. We're worrying about it. We go to bed thinking about it. We wake up thinking about it. We're obsessing over, am I going to be okay? Am I going to be secure? Do we have enough? And you're counting the money again and again and again and again just to make sure that you're all provided for. You might have set your hope on riches if that's the way you live. Here's another sign. You might have set your hope on the uncertainty of riches. You just have a, a desperate fear of the future. You just look ahead in life and you're just afraid. And maybe it's a vague and undefined fear, but you just begin to wonder, oh, I might have enough now, but what if this happens? What if that happens? What if my job goes away? What if my husband's salary is cut? What, what happens if we can't meet the bills in the future? And it might be, and this is sometimes the case with us, that in the moment we are perfectly and abundantly provided for, and yet we're projecting all our fears into the future. That means we've set our hope on the riches. And this is what Paul's saying. Hey, if you're rich, don't set your hope there. If you've got money, don't put your hope on the uncertainty of riches. They're uncertain. What does he say that our hope should rest on? What does it say? It says, but on God. Couldn't be more simple, right? Set your hope 
Not on your riches, not on your money, not on your bank account, not on your income, not on your job security. Set your hope on the fact that you have a Father in heaven who loves you, who knows what you need, who knows the number of hairs on your head, knows your name, and cares for you abundantly. Trust Him. Don't trust your riches. If you trust Him, you could face poverty. If you trust Him, you could face loss. I was reminded of the believers in Hebrews chapter 10 who lost their property and it says they joyfully accepted the plundering of their property. Listen to this. Because they knew they had a better possession an abiding possession. You see what they did? Their wealth was plundered. Their, Their property was lost. But what did they do? They joyfully accepted it. How? I want to be that person. I want our church to be that kind of people. We lose a job. We lose a property. We lose a raise. We lose some income. And we joyfully accept it. How do we become like that? It says, they knew they had a better possession in heaven from God their Father. They knew they were cared for. They had an abiding, lasting city that they would live in. An eternal home. They were abundantly taken care of. That's what happens when you say your hope on God. You could lose and you could still be secure. You could still be joyful. It's the people who set their hope on the uncertainty of this world's wealth and this world's riches that you've probably heard the sad stories. They'll, they'll, they'll jump off a bridge in a recession. They'll think that their life is meaningless when they lose their money. They'll get to the end of their rope. They've so tied up their identity with their wealth that when their wealth disappears, they don't even know who they are anymore. And so they think about even taking their own life. It's happened in this fallen world all too often. And the solution, don't let riches be your hope. They're uncertain. They're fleeting. And as we've seen already in this letter, you can take none of it with you. Set your hope on God. Look at that. Look at this, this saying here. Set your hope on God. Listen to this. A little phrase that describes our God. You can revel in this. Go home and revel in this. Who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. You believe that about God? <laughs> That's an amazing statement. Richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Your riches, your earthly income can't do that. God can. He can provide you everything you need for your highest joy. This is amazing. I think this not only has implications for this life, that God is providing for you blessings that you can enjoy. He's providing for you the measure of income He's given you. He's provided for you a number of blessings in this world, this beautiful world that He's made. But I think this has implications for all eternity, right? God has given us His Son. And in Christ, we are inheritors of the kingdom that will last forever. I want you to see this in Romans chapter 8. This is a a phenomenal passage. If you turn to Romans chapter 8, verse 31. We're reminded to not let our riches be our hope. 
And, and part of the reason we, we shouldn't let riches be our hope is because we're trusting God to be the provider of everything we need for a life of perfect harmony and joy. Not in, only in this life, but for all eternity. Look at this, verse 31, Romans 8. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, marinate on that for a little bit. God Almighty is for you, Christian. If that's true, who could be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? All things! He gave us His Son. That was the greatest He could ever give. He gave us His beloved Son. Friends, this is the Gospel. God, out of His overflowing love, has sent His Son, Jesus Christ. He gave His Son as a gift to the world. God the Son, Jesus Christ, lived perfectly. Lived perfectly in harmony with His Father's will. Voluntarily went to the cross to pay the penalty for the sins of anybody who would ever trust in Him. He conquered sin. He conquered death. He rose from the dead and now freely is offering salvation to anyone who repents of their sin and trusts in Him. He's given us His Son. Now we have Jesus to be our righteousness, to be our forgiveness, to be our sacrificial Lamb, to be our great High Priest. This is our Lord. He's given us that. Now, there might be temptation in some people to think, well, okay, God's given us His Son, but am I going to be taken care of? <laughs> in Paul's logic here, is it's laughable. He gave you His Son. How could He not give you everything? In the Bible storyline culminates with God giving all His creation to His people so they rule and reign with Him forever. It's all ours. Not yet. But it's all ours. We have an inheritance coming. He has given us His Son. And He will graciously give us all things. If He's given us His Son, all of it's ours. We're cared for beyond measure. Do you have any doubt that God loves you, church? Have you ever doubt that God's going to provide for you? He graciously gives you all things. He provides richly for you to enjoy life. And then He will do so for, uh, for all eternity. All eternity. He will be lavishing His blessings on you. This is the Gospel. If you have not trusted in Jesus, do so now. It's a free gift to anyone who would turn away from their sin and trust in Him. And you could be totally forgiven and given this hope of eternal life. And you could set your hope not on the circumstances of this world, but on God through His Son, Jesus Christ. He's given us His Son to be the Savior. He's going to graciously give us all things. He richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Let's set our hope on Him. I like to say this, but I think it bears repeating that if we were all get these chairs and put them into a circle and sit around and go around and say, this is how God has been good to me, I think we could go around that circle numerous times, couldn't we? I think we could say again and again how good God has been to us. That even when things were hard, even when we didn't know, even when we were in the middle of the tunnel and we couldn't see the light at the end of it, God was being good. And He was providing for us. He was being rich in His provision. And it was all a foretaste of the provision that's coming in all eternity. God will care for us. He loves to care for His children. 
He loves to take people who don't deserve it, sinners who have a past. He loves to forgive them. He loves to bring them into his family. He loves to lavish his eternal blessings on them for all eternity. And he loves to show his strength by being a firm foundation for their hope. You can hope in God. You can hope in Christ. You will not be disappointed. So don't let riches be your hope. And here's our last don't. Don't hoard riches for yourself. Verse 18. They are to do good, to be rich. Talking about the the rich. They are to do good. They are to be rich in good works. To be generous and ready to share. Storing up treasure for themselves is a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Don't hoard it. Instead, they are to do good works. Friends, notice back in verse 17. The rich in this present age. I think he throws that little line in this present age to be a just quick and succinct reminder that this age is coming to an end. It is the present age, but it's not the age of eternity. This age and all the wealth of this age All the money you've accumulated in this age means nothing the moment we pass into eternity. It means nothing. It's literally irrelevant. This present age is passing away. And so what do you do with your money? I remember reading about uh, in 2016 that the country of India, the government, declared that 500 and 1,000 dollar rupees, whatever, I don't know what the monetary designation is for those, rupees I think they're called, 500,000 banknotes were declared to be null and void. And they only had like a four hour span to be able to use up those dollars until they were eventually worthless. Could you imagine that? Imagine if tomorrow morning all the money you had was irrelevant. It would get you nowhere, it would buy you nothing. How would you spend your money? From now until sundown, how would you be spending your money? It's an interesting thought experiment. In a sense, it helps us understand there's a, there's a, a coming day that our money is irrelevant. Jesus returns or we die and all that we've accomplished, all that we've accumulated, all the property, property we have disappears and matters not into eternity. It is irrelevant. So how do we live in light of eternity? This is what this is saying. Randy Alcorn would say this, it'll be worthless, but his little slogan is, you can send it on ahead. (laughs) Send it on ahead. Look at what he says, you are to do good. This is the most general statement. If you have rich, if you have riches, you are uniquely equipped to do good. That's an action. Get busy doing good things. Look around at your broken world, do good. Seek opportunities to get busy doing good. Don't just sit there and think about, oh, it's a lot of good things that could be done. I hope someone does them. You say, oh, God, you've given me this. I'm going to do good. That's what we're commanded to do. They are to do good. Secondly, to be rich in good works. I like even the word play here. The rich are to be rich in good works. Those who have a surplus in money are to have a surplus in generosity. You get an overflow of income, be an overflow of generosity and good works to people, to causes. 
Be rich in good works. Just be overflowing with it. The rich among us have more opportunity to do good works than the poor among us. Verse 3, or sorry, not verse 3, the third thing in this little section, not only do good, not only be rich in good works, but be generous, you see that? And ready to share. There's an eagerness here. This is referring more to a heart attitude that the person has. It's not only that you're doing the good works, it's not only that you're doing some philanthropy and you're making some people happy by spreading out your wealth. This is referring to your inner heart disposition that you love to be generous. You're a generous person. You ever met someone like that? They just love to give. It's just boiling over in their heart. They're almost giving to the point where it's, you're like, is this responsible for you to be giving this way? It's, they're, they're amazing to be around. I immediately think of Ebenezer Scrooge. Remember the story? At the beginning of the Christmas carol, he's, he's a cold miser. He's got a hard heart. He's hoarding everything. He's counting all his money. He doesn't want any penny to go missing. Uh, he doesn't want to give any of it away. And after this experience he's brought through where he sees these ghosts, suddenly he realizes the brevity of his own life and he's going through the streets giving bags of money to whoever would take it. I think Christians should be abundantly generous like that. We are rich already. In eternity, we get everything. We have been provided for now. If we have surplus, we are going, what excuse do I have to give? <laughs> what, what excuse can I make to be generous? I love to be generous. I love to be ready to share. Is there need? I want to be a part of it. So he's saying, this is good. Rich, if you're rich, this age is coming to an end. Be rich in giving. Be rich in doing good. Be generous. Be ready to share. And this is what Jesus said. It's more blessed to live this way, right? It's more blessed to give than to receive. It's more blessed to give away. It's more blessed to be on the side of handing it out than taking it in. And so he's calling us to give. Do you believe Jesus when he says that, that might be one of the hardest things for us to believe. Do you believe there's actually more blessing in giving than in receiving? you believe that to be true? Is that reflected in your life? Is that reflected in your generosity? He gives a couple reasons why we should give this way. Look at verse 19. Thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future. You're investing in the future. You give, that's the best investment plan you could ever come up with. You're giving in such a way that God is taking an account of every last penny that you are giving away in generosity toward those who have need. He's taking an accounting of that and he's saying that in you doing that, you're storing up for yourselves treasures. You're giving yourself, you're laying down for yourself a good foundation for that eternal future. Even the small things that you're able to give away. I like in Matthew chapter 10, verse 42, where Jesus is talking about how even when you give a cup of cold water to the needy. I take note of that. I recognize even that little gift. All of it is accounted for. Jesus is not letting any of these things slide unnoticed through and past Him. 
He implores us in Matthew 6, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Friends, eternity will be long, won't it? Life is short. And every time we give, Jesus is taking an accounting and we are storing up for ourselves treasures in heaven. And so we say with Jim Elliott, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep. You can't keep this stuff. None of it. None of it. He's no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. So that's the first reason why you should just give. It's because you're laying up for yourselves treasures in heaven. You're actually storing up for yourself something good, an investment. Secondly, under this last point, look at what he says it does. So that when you give, you give so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. I want you to see the significance of this real quick. If you are investing your money into this world, upgrading this and moving up in that and paying for this, all just to accumulate possessions and comforts. You know where your heart's going to be? It's going to be in this life. In fact, you're going to start to think that life is all about this life. That what really matters is what you can gain, what you can accumulate. And so he's saying here, one of the best ways to fight that Fight that deception that this is all about the here and now. The way you fight that is by giving generously. And when you give generously to God's causes, it enables you to take hold of that which is truly life. Do you see that? It enables you to grab hold of that which really and eternally matters. If you're investing in this life, you're going to think that this life is all there is. When you're investing in eternity, you're grabbing hold truly matters is that which is truly life you are reminding yourself that life does not consist in the abundance of possessions you're reminding yourself that there is an eternity coming you're reminding yourself of these realities and then you're able to take hold of true life if you ever if you ever were to ask someone oh i don't know what i should do i want to have a, a greater heart for for heaven I want to have my mindset on heaven and eternal things. I want to be more focused on those realities that are true. I think Paul could say, where are you investing your money? If you're investing your money in the things of this world, it makes sense that your mind is wrapped up in the things of this world. Remember what Jesus said? Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If all your treasure is invested in the things of this world, where's your heart going to be? It's going to be in this world. But when you invest in eternity and eternal things, you give generously in light of God and His provision for you and for His purposes in the world, that becomes your great passion to give in that way. You invest in that way. Listen, your heart starts to grab hold of those realities, those eternal truths. Your treasure goes there. Your heart follows. And you say, oh man, I am passionately committed to these things. God's not looking for donors who will just kind of uh, just dispassionately give to some causes. He wants passionate disciples who say, I love the Lord. I love His purposes. I love what He's doing in the world. I'm investing my money there because that's where I want my heart to be. So let's ask this question. Are you generous? Do you give? 
How do you think through your giving? If we have been forgiven much, Jesus says we ought to forgive much. I think the same principle could be given in relation to what we've been given. If we have been given much, have we? Infinitely blessed by God. If we have been given much, we should be ready to give much. So a lack of generosity, as we see from the implications of what Paul says here, would be a spiritual problem. Not a budgeting problem. A spiritual problem. We are looking at Jesus' statement, it's more blessed to give than to receive, and we're saying, I don't buy it, Jesus. I don't buy it. I'm hoping in my money. I'm banking on it. You say it's a blessing to give? I don't know. I think it's a blessing to have. If that's you, let me just echo the words that Robert Murray McShane said to his church as a warning. He said, I'm concerned for the poor, but more for you. Speaking to the rich. I know not what Christ will say to you in the great day. I fear there are many hearing me who may know well that they are not Christians because they don't love to give. To give largely and liberally, not grudging at all, requires a new heart. An old heart would rather part with his lifeblood than its money. Oh, my friends, enjoy your money. Make the most of it. Give none of it away. Enjoy it quickly, for I can tell you, you will be beggars throughout eternity. It's a heavy statement. But those who will not be generous because they don't understand the generosity of Christ are evidencing a heart that has not been made new. A heart that's not actually trusting in the provisional care of God. And so they're holding on to riches instead of letting Christ hold on to them. I want you to see in this last, this last point, <laughs> in this segment that Paul writes to Timothy, you know what's glaringly absent as a motivation to give? Guilt. You're not to feel guilty and then give like, okay, I'll give. Give generously. Be ready to share. Why? You are loved by God and abundantly provided for. He provides richly. He is a secure foundation for your life. He takes account to everything you give. He promises a good foundation in heaven and treasures in heaven when you give. You teach your heart to treasure that which is truly life when you give. There are a whole host of blessings to give. It's a great privilege to give, isn't it? What a privilege. And so if you're going, all right, what do I do with, with my money? I got some money. I'm not sure what maybe I should do with it. Where, where, give me some counsel. I say, all right, are, are you, you feeding your family? Good, okay? You're, you're getting the food on your back. You're providing for You're being responsible. Great. Here's my advice to you. Don't be proud. Don't be proud because you're rich. Don't say your hope on those riches. They're uncertain. They might not be there tomorrow. Set your hope on God, trust Him to provide abundantly, and then be creative in being rich in good works and adopt a heart posture where you love to be generous and you love to be ready to share and do so with the conviction that it's all worth it. It's all worth it and that it's a pathway to blessing. 
I praise the Lord for our church and the way that we've demonstrated generosity. And I want to continue to encourage you. Think this way. Pray this way. Dream about over-the-top lavish and abundant love and generosity and giving. Not because God wants more donors, but because God is glorified as we imitate Him in our lavish generosity. Let's pray. Lord, to think that You have given us Your Son to pay the penalty for our sin, to give us Him as our Savior, our substitute, our righteousness, our great High Priest. And then, Lord, as a promise, You've also given us all things. It's all going to be ours, the inheritance. We will rule and reign with You forever in the new heavens and the new earth. And we will not lack at all then. In light of these things, Lord, we could never give enough. If we were to sell everything we have and give it to You, we would never be able to give enough. We could never pay You back. And so, Lord, this isn't about trying to pay You back. This isn't about being guilty and trying to pay back for some of our salvation. Lord, we are just thrilled to participate in Your plan of redemption. And we want to be like you. So Lord, allow us to give generously and lavishly so as to point people to your generosity that you've given to us in the gospel. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.